Pastor Terry and I are very, very excited about our plan for this summer. Um, if you haven't heard about it, Terry announced it last week. Um, but our goal is on Wednesday nights is we want to have a family-focused time for Wednesday nights, something that everybody can enjoy and take something from and us spending time together as the church in not necessarily a Sunday morning type format, but instead a Wednesday night type format. And we're really, really excited about it. And uh, we're going to be tag teaming the message lesson time kind of thing. And it's going to be all story focused. We're going to be looking at stories from scripture and what we can learn from them. And so today I thought that we would kind of have kind of a shameless plug towards our Wednesday nights. I'm going to tell you a story, all right? Um, and so I had to go through and look at, we, we've got it all scheduled out every other week. I'm taking one, Pastor Terry's taking one. So I had to go through our whole list and find one that we weren't doing. <laughs> that was quite a project. Um, if you could turn to 2 Kings chapter 5, that's where we will be today. 2 Kings chapter 5, and you're welcome to follow along in there if you'd like. A lot of what I will be doing today will simply be telling you the story, though. Uh, so if you want to follow along and, like, double-check that, you know, oh, yeah, that is in there, then go for it, all right? Um, but for the most part, I'll, I'll be reading from it a couple different times, but for the most part, we're simply going to talk through it because I think that the stories of the Bible are absolutely amazing. There are wonderful things that we can learn from them, and a lot of times we tend to kind of divide that up, right? The stories over the kids in Sunday school. Paul's messages are for coming in a Sunday morning sermon, right? And, and so I, it, that's not how we should look at it, right? So we have so much that we can learn and draw from as the church, from examples from Scripture, from what God did and how he acted throughout history. And so it's just a really, really great thing for us to look at. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to be looking at the story of Naaman. Naaman was the commander of the Syrian army, all right? So in some sense, he's not a good guy in the story, right? Um, he was a Syrian. This was an enemy of the people of Israel, right? And in fact... God even said that he gave him victory in his battles as commander of the king's army. Well, guess where a lot of those battles took place? Israel, right? In fact, they even took prisoners with them, and, and that's where we're going to find another person in this story who's going to come later. But the Bible tells us that God blessed Naaman with victory, right? He, he has a successful career. He has a good life. Things are, are good, but a really, really huge problem happens. He finds out he has leprosy. Leprosy is a, a really, really terrible disease. Um, it's one of those weird ones where it's like it's, it's not as big of a thing nowadays. Modern medicine has really kind of helped with leprosy and that kind of stuff. So it's one of those like ones that like us guys who went to Bible college learned about that like isn't, it, it's a really, really bad disease though. Like you, you literally start falling apart. Um, <laughs> uh, you, you lose your limbs, your nose falls off, like it's bad, right? Um, and so, so Naaman gets told this and, and again, modern medicine has really helped it, 
Back then, it was basically a death sentence. Um, Naaman is... When he heard this, when he found this out, he must have been absolutely crushed, right? Um, he, he essentially, in, in some ways, in modern comparison, has been told he has stage four cancer, right? It's not a good prognosis. Hope is kind of lost here for him. Life seemed to be going good, and then something just completely crashes down around him. I don't know about you. I've experienced this. It happens in life, right? Um, maybe not to this extent, but things are going good. You're going along, and then something happens that just makes all of that good kind of, what, what was the point in all that? I have this that I have to deal with now, and this is Naaman's loss of hope here, right? And then he finds some hope. A servant girl, who is the servant of his wife, tells her of a man from her home country who did incredible things. He, were, he was a prophet of, of God, and he could do these incredible miracles. Maybe he could help Naaman. This young girl was from Israel. She was talking about the prophet Elisha, and uh, I've, I've said this before. I've preached on Elijah before. Elijah and, and Elisha, they're kind of like, to, to me, they're like kind of one big story in my head. I, I love that whole series of stories and, and that whole area of Scripture. There's just so many incredible things, and I, I love looking in that. And when we hear of those stories, right, I'm sure to kind of share with him, she shared some of the things that Elisha has done. And when Naaman hears this possibility, he goes to the king, who the Bible tells us is his good friend, and he goes and, and he shares that he heard that there, there's a man who could possibly help him in Israel. And he asks him permission to go. And, and the king does more than that. He actually gives him many gifts and, and things that he can use as kind of a, you know, maybe this will help you out a little bit to convince him to help you. You know, here, take this. I'm going to write a letter to the king of Israel uh, explaining the situation. Go, see what, what, what can happen. So Naaman packs up and he, he heads out and he travels to Israel and he goes and he presents himself to the king. He gives him the king's letter and the, the, the king just completely freaks out. Now, now picture his situation here, right? You have the king of, Assyri or of Syria, right? One of your enemies who has pretty well beat you in battle a couple times already before, and he sends the commander of his army with a letter. Here, read this. Uh, this guy has leprosy, a completely uncurable disease. Fix him, and I'll be very happy with you, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's... Talk about a power play, right? <laughs> the king freaks out. He doesn't know what to do. He's like, I can't help you. Elisha, knowing of this, sends a message to the king saying, send Naaman my way. I will take care of this. And so Naaman goes and to Elisha, and he travels over there, and he comes to the, the door of Elisha's house and knocks on the door, and... Elisha's servant shows up, says, hey, um, go dunk in the river, Jordan River, seven times, and you'll be healed. And close the door, that, that's the end of it, <laughs> right? 
Naaman's not very impressed with Elijah at this point, right? Um, I, when I read this part of the um, story, I, I kind of picture, uh, you know, Miracle Max from The Princess Bride, right? Um, you know, they're going to, to see Miracle Max, right? He's going to solve their problem. He, they, they go there, and, and you're watching, and it's this, like, crotchety old guy who's complaining about everything running around. You're like, I'm not sure this is what they were expecting, right? I don't think this is going to work. This has to be kind of Naaman's impression of Elisha at this point, right? Like, okay, I heard all of these great things about him. I traveled all of this way. He doesn't even come to the door, which first off is rude, right? Second off, he didn't do anything. Like, what, what, what is this? So Naaman is not happy about this, right? He, he's angry, and he, he's resentful of this, and, and he just wants to go home. I, I came all of this way. I thought... I would, he would just, like, wave his hand around and pray to his God, and, like, it would just go away, right? Like, something flashy. I want a flashy miracle. And that didn't happen, right? I mean, picture you, you have something. You have a problem, right? And you go all the way down to Ohio because you hear that someone down there can help you out, and they're like, yeah, go jump in the Erie River, right? And you're like, take a bath in the Erie River. I mean, Mayfly season, gross, right? No, I could have done this in the Huron River. So much nicer, right? Where's Abigail? Ha, okay. Um, <laughs> she's from Ohio, by the way. Um, right? This is kind of the, the perspective that he gets from this. And he's like, what in the world? Picture what he was thinking of when he came here, right? Like, I imagine if at least one of the stories he heard was of Elijah, the, Elisha's predecessor, who'd called down fire from heaven, right? Like, that's what he was picturing, this big, flashy, bam, you are healed. That's what I wanted from God. And that didn't happen. It's just not good enough for him to go and do this. And so he's heading home. Now, Naaman's sermon, servant as they're on heading away, talks to him in, in, into listening. He says, if, if Elisha had asked you to do something huge, right, wouldn't you have done it? If he asked you to do, do some grand, grandiose gesture for God, you would have done that. He, yeah, I, I, I would have went and, you know, fought in a, a whole army by myself. I would have done whatever it took. So what makes something so simple and so degrading that bad of a thing then? Maybe this is less about how God has failed you and more about your own need for things to work the way you wanted them to. That's what's really going on here, isn't it? That's something I can relate to. I don't know about you. That happens to me a lot, right? I, I have this idea set in my head on how things are supposed to work, how I expect God to do things. If, if I'm really doing this for God, this is how it, he should respond, right? This is how it should actually work out. And then it doesn't. When I get frustrated and tired and, and, and annoyed by that, is that because God failed me? Is that because God didn't work? Or because I need to change my way of thinking about how I'm living for God? This is essentially what the, the conversation that goes down. I'm, there's a lot more involved than I said, but like that's basically what he talks him through is if you were to do something big and flashy in something, then, then you would have done it. But because he's asking you to humble yourself, that's not good enough for you. Just go do it. 
Naaman kind of sees the, the logic in this, right? And, and so he decides he's going to do it. He, he goes to the Jordan River, and he steps into it. And he's supposed to dip down seven times into the Jordan River. And I picture from, from Naaman's perspective, that's probably took a, a, a long time, right? He's the commander of this army. He's got, I, who knows how many people he brought with him. They usually travel in like a big entourage kind of thing with this. Uh, he's, he's in enemy territory, right? And all of his men are probably watching him <laughs> at least head to the river, right? And they know he's going to do this. And he steps down into the river, and he dips down in one time, right? And he comes back out. And the Bible doesn't tell us that anything changes up until the seventh time. I have to imagine that there was like no change, right? He dips down, he comes out, nothing, all right? Here we go again, right? And he dips down into the water, he comes back out. Man, this is so dumb. Why am I doing this, right? I just imagine all the stuff going through his head while he's going through this process. Three and four. See how long this takes? It's really five. Six. Okay, here we go. This, like, my entire life is hanging on the balance of this one last final dip, and he dips into the water, and he comes back out, and he was healed. And the Bible describes that he, he, he was healed. His skin was smooth like that of a child's, right? I, we have a similar terminology nowadays, right? Smooth as a baby's butt, right? Like, it's, it's that kind of idea. It's smooth. His skin is clean. He has been completely healed. Naaman is completely elated. He is so happy about this, right? And he goes back to Elisha's house, and, and he, he insists that Elisha takes these gifts that the king had given to him. He wants him to, to just know his gratitude, and Elisha denies it all. He says, no, this, that, that wasn't the purpose behind what I did. God called me to do this for you, to give you simply a message from him. Don't, don't give me anything. You go on your way. And Naaman, he, he says, fine, if you won't take anything, at least allow me to take some land back with me from Israel, some dirt, right? As kind of a reminder of, of and this takes some understanding of, of the theology of, of polytheism of the area at the time, but the idea was, was to, to them that, that gods were gods of areas, right, of, of places. And so his idea is taking this little piece back with him is kind of like accepting the, the, the God of this land is my God. This is who I serve. This is the one true God that I live for, right? That was kind of the, the concept there. And I, I, I don't think he entirely got proper theology there, right? But, but his heart was in the right place. He had this idea, I'm going to live for God. I'm going to serve him. He is the one I will pray to now, Right? And so Elisha, okay, yeah, that's what I want you to do, right? That's good. So, so he, he does that, and he heads back. And on his way back, this, this is where it gets really interesting, though. If you're following along, this is coming up under the verse 15 of chapter 5. We completely switch directions here. We leave... Naaman's perspective, and we move towards the perspective of Elisha's servant, Gehazi, all right? Completely 180 on this whole concept. And, and you see, Gehazi, he wasn't impressed with how God did things here either. 
to, in Gehazi's mind, he, he's thinking, we should have gained from this. We, we should have benefited from this. You, this Gentile, right, an enemy of Israel shows up wanting to be healed from his leprosy and for nothing. He just gets cured. God just cures him. And so Gehazi, he decides he's going to take matters into his own hands because Elisha, he didn't accept those gifts and those things. So he runs ahead and catches up with Naaman and says, hey, wait, uh, he comes up with some excuse, right? We, we, we have some visitors. We have other prophets who are here. We could actually use that to, to you know, be good hosts for them. Uh, Elisha wants to take that stuff now. And, and so Naaman gives it to him, right? And Gehazi returns back, and Elisha knows exactly what he did. And Elisha tells him because of what he did, he would now have Naaman's leprosy. He would have the leprosy that was just cured. The servant, the one who was supposedly the good guy, right? The one who was the servant of the, one of the greatest prophets in Israel at the time, right? Failed in his faith, and he would suffer from the leprosy that he took credit for healing by taking those gifts. See how that worked there? And that's the end of our story. But here's what I, I want us to kind of take away from this today, because both of these events that happen in this story, both looking at Naaman and looking at Gehazi, kind of point towards the same thing. If God doesn't seem good enough, we're expecting too much of ourselves and too little of him. We take our idea of who God should be, who we would who we want him to be to work in our benefit, right? Often we do this. We, we set up our own little, little rules on how God should work. And, and usually, I play a pretty big role in that idea on how God should work, right? We make ourselves the center of the story, and we expect him to work that way. But I promise you this. Whatever you've come up with, he's way better than that. He is way bigger than that and greater than that. But interestingly, when God doesn't fit that small-minded idea that we have of who he should be, we get frustrated by it. I hope you're not getting bored with my Adeline analogies. I can't help it. I'm a dad, and it's only been a couple years here, so I'm still super excited about it, right? Um, Adeline <laughs> is coming up on toddler stage now, right? So she is actually really, really good at communicating what she wants now. She doesn't talk, but she's got these ways that she can get you to know what she wants, right? Like, she's got these little grunts and these points, and, and she's able to tell you, uh, I want to go over there, right? It's way cuter when she does it. I, I can't, but, right? Or, or she'll be sitting there, and she'll pat next to her on the stairs and be like, come sit next to me, Dad, right? And I'll, okay, all right, I'll come sit next to you, right? And, and she's learning these words, not necessarily ones that we wanted to learn, but, like, she's coming up with these sounds that mean things, right? So she can tell us stuff that she wants. Now, in her little head... I say this thing, that means I get what I want. I pat here, that means dad sits there. That's the rule, that's how it's supposed to work, right? That's the way things are. I point, it happens. I do, it happens. And I cannot, for the life of me, even, I don't even know how to begin to explain to her the complexities of why I can't give her what she wants sometimes or why I can't do what she wants sometimes, right? I'm trying to 
balance this life for her that she has, right? And, and there is no, sorry, that little cracker that you want right now is not the big deal right now, okay? We, we got to go, we're late for church, <laughs> right? So, and she gets frustrated and she gets mad because she can't even begin to comprehend the idea of life or responsibility or any of these things. Take that tiny little example and multiply that by how infinitely greater God is than us. And we get stuck in our own little heads, this idea of he should have done this here for me. He should have acted this way or helped me get through this in the way I wanted him to help me get through this. And we get frustrated when he doesn't fit our idea of God. And we may never say it, But the way that we respond to situations that happen in our lives, sometimes the way that we respond is saying, I wish God were different. And when we think about it like that, oh, I would never say that, right? But how do we live? How do we react to the way that God calls us to be in Scripture when we really don't want to do it that way? When things happen that we really wish didn't happen, And like Naaman, we get angry. We resent the whole thing. Sometimes we, we just forget it. I give up in, in whatever way that might look like for you. Or like the servant, Gehazi, we, we, we try to take matters into our own hands and try to make things work our way. We try to make God work the way we want him to work, right? In, in youth group on Wednesday, we actually talked about this. We were looking at uh, the book of, of Samuel. We're going through all both of them. And uh, the Israelites... Uh, we're, we're losing to the Philistines, so they take the Ark of the Covenant and they like bring it to battle with them. And they're like, this is like our little lucky charm trophy, right? We, we take it with us and we'll win. And they, they just get slaughtered and then they, you know, the Philistines take the Ark with them, right? They literally put God in the box, right? The Ark of the Covenant and, and said, this is how he works and he's going to do it this way. And then God does it his own way, right? He, he completely just frustrates the Philistines from the inside when the ark is there, right? And actually makes their idol fall over and stuff like that. It's a really cool story. Look it up, First uh, Samuel. I think it is also chapter 5, actually. But um, we, we, we keep doing this, right? This, this is something that is a very human thing to do. We put God in our own little idea of who she should be, and then we get frustrated when he doesn't actually do it that way. And we get frustrated. I'm so done with this. I'm so t- just tired. I'm, I'm, I'm sick of this bad thing going on in my life right now. Can't you just wave your hand, God, and make it all better? If you're so powerful, can't you fix this, right? We hear people question the, the problem of evil in our world all the time, right? Can't you make things better? Isn't that what makes you God is that you have the power to do that? Fixing things isn't what makes God God, though. What makes him God is that he is the sovereign Lord and creator over all things, and his power and his creativity and his goodness is so infinitely beyond us that we can, instead of being frustrated by that, rest in knowing that we live for him, not the other way around. Because I promise you, our, our idea of a perfect world would derail like that. 
It will always be better when we stop trying to make God work in our favor and instead seek to live for him and come to truly know who he is as he reveals himself to us. And that's hard because that's humbling, <laughs> right? <laughs> and there's three kind of different ways that we can kind of approach this right now because we don't always are in the same place in life, right? Maybe right now you're good. Maybe things are going okay. Maybe things with God are good. You're, you're not frustrated. Things are, are cool. You, you feel like you're walking great. And I have two things for us to take from this for you. First off, be very careful that it's not because God is fitting in your box right now. Sometimes things work the way we want them to, right? And our faith can actually be slowly and sneakily diminishing over time because they're working the way we want them to and not because we're seeking to live for God. So be careful of that. But maybe that's not what happened. Maybe you're just in a really great place right now with God. There may come a time when things get rough. It's important for us to remember these things now so that when that comes, we are ready for it. Second situation, maybe you are frustrated with life and the circumstances you're in right now. Maybe you are just tired of the way things are working. It's a humbling experience to depend on God. And it's not easy. So I just want to encourage you with that today. Maybe I can kind of be name and servant for you. I know it's tough. I know you'd really, really like to, for, for just some big flashy miracle to come in and just make everything better, right? You don't want to do the humbling, simple thing of just keeping at it. You've got it. God will carry you through this. And finally, maybe you've been trying to make things work. You've been trying to skirt God's word and make things work out for your own needs or, or for the way that, that you were hoping that things would turn out. You try to make things push in that direction. Turn back to God. Live for God and his goodness because I promise you it is the best. And while we might not necessarily see that on this side of our circumstances, God has promised us in his word that the best way to live is for him. So turn to him. Seek to know who he is, not who you want him to be or your idea of who he should be, but seek to truly know God so that we might live for him so that we may enjoy the purposes that he is bringing about that we will at some point know this was good and best let's pray Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this story. It's incredible how often you used those who shouldn't have been the example, the, the, the enemy of your people, the, the, the Gentile who comes in seeking for, for restoration is the one who is the example of faith. 
while the one who is the servant of the prophet, the one who has the, the status and the position, fails. And I just love that that is a picture to us that it, it, it isn't about who we are. It's about who you have called us to be. It's about who you are. And I pray that, that we will just learn to do that, that we will, as we seek to know you, learn to humble ourselves and live in such a way that is for you. Because that is who you created us to be, and that is amazing.